0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak, and as has been our want for the past month and a half, we're speaking to you from our commodious home offices.
1: I wouldn't say mine was commodious or an office. I'm speaking to you from my closet, which has been turned into a radio studio. I'm Molly Bentley, During this time of social distancing, perhaps we've never been so aware that we are both solitary individuals, especially if sheltering at home alone, and members of and dependent on a community, whether it's our family, church, state, or nation. But we're not the only animals juggling these roles. Birds, whales, bears, chimpanzees, and many other social animals understand who they are relative to who they are with.
2: They have a sense of group identity. This is one of the things that until recently was often talked about as being uniquely human. Most of the people who talk about things being uniquely human have not watched a lot of other non-human things living their lives. Ecologist Carl Safina has spent a lot of time
0: watching non-human critters do their thing He's a MacArthur Fellow and an ecology professor at Stony Brook University, and he's written extensively about our relationship with the natural world. His focus is conservation.
1: As our movements within our familiar human world are circumscribed, we may find ourselves turning to the other living world. If you're like me, you're finding yourself looking out the window these days for long stretches of time. I read somewhere at least one person has named all the squirrels in their backyard, for example. Well... This is how I notice just how busy the area is around our Mexican sage bushes. The hummingbirds love the little purple flowers, but they are also curiously engaged with each other. They dart back and forth across each other's flight paths and sometimes furiously circle each other, a miniature tornado lifting into the sky. Is it amorous or territorial behavior? I don't know, although I suspect that one of you listening does. But I enjoy taking the time to watch them
0: paying attention to, and frankly learning from, the behavior of others is how many animals learn to become members of a group. It's essential schooling for them. In his book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace, Dr. Safina describes the social learning of many animals and how knowledge passes from one generation to the next. An especially insightful example is provided by studying parrots, that's right, Captive breeding programs have let scientists watch baby macaws, who are born in captivity, explore the forest, and gain local knowledge. So, do you want to learn to be a parrot? Get ready to take notes.
2: They have to learn what food is. They have to learn where food is. They have to learn when food is. They learn the identity of individuals that they travel with by, uh, in some cases, learning a local dialect. They have to learn what constitutes the right kind of place to make a nest. They have to learn often what constitutes the right kind of courtship behavior, courtship calls, courtship dances, things like that.
0: We talk with ecologist Carl Safina in this episode about how parrots, bears, and whales become who they are, the threats they face, and where we can find some hope about their future and ours. Dr. Safina says that the current pause in human activity is a rare opportunity to consider the matter of who are we here
2: with. You know, most fundamentally, culture is what answers the question of how do we live here where we are? And macaws and many other kinds of animals live over large ranges where the habitat can be very different. The seasonality of the food, they eat mostly fruit, can be very different. What kinds of foods they have can be very different. They, they can learn what food is in a cage, but they can't learn where to go look for it and when to go look for it in a cage. Usually, they learn that just by following around their elders, just like we learn how we live where we live by the example of our parents, whether we learn how to cook food on a range, get it out of the refrigerator, or we learn how to catch salmon and smoke it. There are all these different skills that are a second kind of inheritance. We think of genetics as the only thing we inherit, but we inherit culture from our elders also. And that's true of um, these birds, the macaws and many other species.
0: This brings up an interesting question for me, which is, you know, what's the difference between these species that depend on, if you will, learning information that wasn't in them when they were born versus others that, you know, completely automatic? Like if I were born a krill, I, I don't think anybody's going to teach me anything. I mean, I, I have to, it all has to be, you know, hardwired within me.
2: So there are some species where all their behaviors are instinctive, There are some where most of their behaviors are cultural, and there are some that are in between. There have been experiments with fish and with birds where young ones, babies, were raised by parents who were a different species. The researcher had switched them, so they were being raised by the wrong species. And when they grew up, guess who they wanted to go and mate with? The species that raised them showing that their attractiveness, their idea of what was sexy, was purely cultural.
1: Well, to give a specific example, I think you talk about the mallard that was raised by the loon community. (laughs) And it was doing all sorts of loon behavior, like it would dive, even though mallards don't usually dive, if anyone has watched a mallard, but loons do
2: Yes, that was a really strange story and a really instructive one. Uh, Nobody has ever before documented a mallard duck being raised by loons, but for some reason this happened, and what they were seeing was that the mallard duckling was doing a lot of things that only loons are known to do and ducks are never known to do. It was riding around on their backs. Ducklings don't do that loons always do that it was diving underwater something that mallards don't do and and all of that stuff it was learning a culture it was learning the culture of another species that i think was a good natural experiment that showed that there is much more social learning than we think and many things that we just assume are purely instinctive have at least some socially learned component to it, and in some cases, a lot of socially learned aspects.
1: Can I tell you the, the image that has really stayed with me? A lot of animals make an appearance in your book, Becoming Wild, but it was the description of the grizzly bear expert working with bear cubs, and he he wanted to find out how the little cubs, how they learned what to eat. So he ate some red clover, You remember this? from? Yes. Oh, I remember it very well. Yes. Okay. He ate some red clover. Can you describe what happened next? Because it is so endearing.
2: Yes. So this is a man named Ben Killam, and he actually works with black bear cubs that are orphaned in New Hampshire. The other guy, Barry Gilbert, who's mentioned, I think, in the same paragraph, is the grizzly expert.
1: You got to bear with me on those mistakes.
2: (laughs) That's an unbearable kind of humor, as you know. So this this wonderful person Ben Killam in New Hampshire he he receives all the orphan black bears that people find in the state the conservation department brings them to him and he raises and rewilds them and he teaches them how to become wild uh that's the title of my book and he described to me how the young bears learn what is food from their mother and he knew that these particular cubs he was out with one day had never eaten red clover, which is a type of food that black bears in that area frequently eat. So, he put some red clover in his mouth while he was on his hands and knees, and the, the little bear cubs were off a ways, and as soon as they saw him do that, they came scurrying over to him and sniffed his mouth to see what is the identity of this thing that he is eating, because they were queuing on him as a parent bear. So, immediately upon Upon receiving that identity with the scent of it, they went not sniffing around, and then they suddenly found some red clover and began eating it. That's how they learned in that instant how red clover is food for them in that area. That's exactly the way they would have done it with their mother. And uh, I, I can tell you a story from just this morning that I thought was interesting. We, partly because we're stuck at home, we decided this was the perfect time to get some new baby chicks. Baby chickens. And I've been noticing that whenever I bend down and do anything at all, they, they come running over to me and they see what I'm doing. And so I've started to try to introduce some new food to them by going down on my hands and knees and dribbling a little bit on the ground, whatever whatever it happens to be, certain kind of new seeds or, or lettuce or something like that. And they instantly, instantly start picking up what I've dropped. But older chickens do exactly the opposite. They're afraid of new things. And one of the things we see across culture, and this this rings true in humans also, and, and in the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. One of the things you see across culture is the young ones are much more flexible about adapting something new, and much more receptive to learning by the example of their elders, and then what they know kind of hardens into habits, and they don't like to deviate much from those habits.
0: That sounds like a good survival strategy, of course. I mean, if if you've made it to age 18 as a human, whatever you're doing is presumably
2: the right thing to do, right? Uh, yes, uh, we should we should share that knowledge with the eighteen year olds you You write, Carl, about how other animals deal with
0: uncertainty, and of course uncertainty is a word that has a certain resonance uh, today in the face of this virus. Can you give an example of how you know animals deal with uncertainty because you know on the one hand, you would expect that some flexibility in behavior would be good for them, but on the other hand, a lot of them don't exhibit that.
2: Yeah. um, I think a lot of animals that are quite capable of learning new things are very reticent to do that in the wild. The, the, The most extreme example I know is orca whales, or they used to be called killer whales. In the wild, their communities learn to do certain things in certain ways, and mostly they're distinguished by what kinds of food they eat. So, Some eat only fish. Some eat only mammals. Some in the Antarctic eat only one kind of seal. Others eat only penguins. And then they're very, very reluctant to be very flexible about that. But one reason is, in some cases, that if you do what's working, you're less likely to make a mistake by trying something new. So if you're accustomed to catching salmon, and then you try to catch a stellar sea lion that weighs 2,000 pounds, you might get very badly injured because you don't know how to do that. But if you're in a group where you've learned how to do that from birth, then that's what you do. That's how you make a living.
1: One of the themes that comes out of your writing and, and certainly your most recent book is that it's important to to set aside our assumptions about what we think animals are doing and try to see the world from their point of view to the degree that we can and I'm wondering in what ways we we have a a blinkered perspective on the natural world and its complexities and the resourcefulness of the natural world. What is it that we are missing when we really look at it from the human point of view?
2: Well, we're missing everything when we look at it from the human point of view, because mostly we can't see it at all. I mean, the people who learn how animals live are the people who make a living watching them for thousands of hours, day after day, week after week, often for decades. Most of us have no interaction with or experience with any free-living animal. The the animals we know best are, are dogs and cats. But almost none of us get to sit and watch and watch and watch animals actually going about their lives out in the real world. When to forage, who to follow, where to go, what to avoid, when to move from one place to another different place, how to respond if conditions are bad or the the weather turns deadly. One researcher, the the well-known elephant researcher Cynthia Moss, told me she, just very matter of factly, she said, after about 20 years, I started to realize what they were keying on in the cues they were picking up from one another. Now, who gets 20 years to watch elephants living to suddenly have that insight that you finally get what's going on with them in, in the everydayness of what they simply learn as babies about how to be elephants?
1: Can you tell us uh, about a time that you were surprised by the connection that you felt with another animal, even though you have dedicated your life to tuning yourself to that frequency of the non-human world? Is there an example of where you were still had the capacity to be surprised by the connection that you felt?
2: Well, you know, in a way, since I have dedicated my life to that, most of the surprises happened a long time ago and, and were such large insights that they led me, in a way, to not being surprised, because I'm always learning new things. Probably the first and biggest and deepest of those kinds of insights happened when I was extremely young. When I was seven years old, and we lived in Brooklyn, New York, I demanded from my father that I must raise homing pigeons, and I must be doing this now. So um, <laughs> so I started raising homing pigeons when I was seven, a little kid. And we fixed up a shed in our backyard and we set it up to breed homing pigeons. So when you breed pigeons, you put them in a stack of boxes. We used fruit crates. We stacked up some fruit crates and you put a bowl in the fruit crate and you give them nesting material in the coop somewhere and they decide who they're going to, Pair up with. They f- furnish their nesting bowl. Sometimes they fight with each other or mates squabble. They leave the coop for long parts of the day. They come back, they feed their babies, they have supper, and they go to sleep. And right across the yard, we lived in a three story tenement building. That was our own stack of boxes where the people there had decided who they were going to pair up with, and sometimes they fought and squabbled and the adults were gone for long periods of the day and they came back and fed their babies and had supper and went to sleep. And in broad strokes, our lives seemed exactly the same. And um, my higher education attempted to disabuse me of that notion for a while. But the, the deep truth is that in broad strokes, these lives are in fact identical. The imperatives are stay alive every day keep your babies alive every day and um, find enough food to keep the enterprise going. That was, you know, in a way, I would say it didn't surprise me at age seven because the whole world seems new. You're always just learning new things. But looking back on it, I think that was a fundamental inflection point because I, I had such intimate contact with those birds. I would stay in the coop watching them for hours sometimes.
1: You were the baby cub. You were the baby macaw watching the world and trying to make sense of it.
2: That's, that's true, really. In a sense, that is exactly right.
0: You know, Molly, one of the things that was a bit surprising to me, the example he gave of the uh, baby chicks coming up and paying very much attention to what he was doing, as long as they were still baby chicks. Once they became hens or roosters or whatever it was they were going to become, you know, they, they lost a little interest, they already knew how to behave. But I thought that that was really interesting because that's not just, it's not just chickens that learn readily while they're young and often spurn attempts to educate them when they're older. As we continue our conversation with ecologist Carl Safina, we discuss the species saved by the Endangered Species Act, the recent weakening of that law, and why the argument that we need other species is not the one we should use to protect them.
1: It's The Other Living World on Big Picture Science.
0: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash X-N-A-S. As we practice social distancing, we may find ourselves experiencing some introspection about our roles as members of our community. But since we can't interact with our community the way we once did, and will again, of course... Some of us may be finding solace in nature.
1: But does nature find solace in us? There was a time when animals, such as wild parrots, were not burdened with the disruption of human activity.
2: For 50 million years, parrots flew where the mood took them. No parrot suffered the indignity of clipped wings, went insane with loneliness, plucked himself bare, or ached for affection and normal society. No one talked gibberish to parrots or taught them foul language. For fifty million years no parrot heard a chainsaw or fled a nesting tree being cut down or saw its forest felled and burned and filled with scrawny cattle. Parrots were made for a world that made them and provided everything they needed. The world knew who parrots were. Parrots knew their world. The world of parrots was among the richest and the most beautiful realms of that original world.
0: There are more than a hundred known parrot species that are threatened with extinction in the wild. Recently added to the list is the brilliantly colored scarlet macaw, which is native to Mexico, Central, and South America. Now, that's a species that's foreign to the United States, But the Act requires the species to be listed regardless of what country it happens to be living in, which ensures that any activities within the United States don't contribute to its further decline.
1: It's just one of the many ways that the Endangered Species Act, created in 1973, offers powerful protection to threatened species and, inevitably, an entire network of relationships with other living things.
2: Species is basically the group of individuals that can freely interbreed with one another. That's usually what's meant by species. The importance of species is that these diverse groups of individuals have figured out different ways to essentially inject life into every nook and cranny of the surface of this planet and many of them below the surface, a certain distance and they have thereby created what's called ecology, which is all of the interdependencies and the interrelationships. It's quite like a bush that starts with one stem near the ground and diversifies into many, many different branches. That's, that's really what life is. Species all rely on other species. That's why they're crucial.
0: In 2019, the Trump administration weakened the protections of the Endangered Species Act, making it easier to remove a species from the list, and for the first time, taking economic assessments of critical habitats into consideration when deciding whether a species should be protected. Now, in this part of our discussion with ecologist Carl Safina, we talk about the threats facing the other living world.
1: Carl, I've been thinking a lot about how oblivious the rest of the natural world is to this pandemic and the human anxiety around it. I look out at the trees, and they don't know what's happening. The flowers are budding, and the insects are buzzing around, and I think a lot of us are finding the permanence of nature's cycles reassuring. But I was also thinking that as a species-wide event, it's rare that the human species around the world is tuned to the same threat. So I wondered, have there been any crises shared by species in the non-human animal or plant world that they have felt acutely, that they have transmitted signals about, that humans have been oblivious to?
2: That's a very interesting question. I'll preface by saying it's been very interesting to me. Usually when I see animals and things in nature, I often see the threats and the risks for them, and it has been an interesting pause in that feeling to realize that this thing that is very threatening and very disruptive to us is not at all felt by them. In fact, it's relieving them of some of the pressure, at least temporarily. There are threats that other animals have all faced together, but I don't think they've seen it that way. What animals are geared to are not things that would threaten the entire planet or threaten all animals around the world, and in fact we're not geared to that threat right now ourselves. We're only geared to what threatens our own species at the moment. On the other hand, elephants seem to understand a very broad threat to them, which is that they just are getting murdered by people with guns for their ivory. and not only as individuals seem to understand this, which is pretty common, many animals understand when a place is dangerous or people are dangerous versus where people are not dangerous. But elephants seem to know this as not only a group, they seem to get the messages across very long distances of quite a few miles, where in some way they detect the emotional state of other elephants that that may be tens of miles away. Either they can hear them in ways that are subsonic to human ears, or they have some other modality of picking up these kinds of things.
0: There was uh, recently news about the third mass bleaching uh, of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. I believe that this is interpreted as being a consequence of the warmer oceans due to climate change, Uh, But what are the consequences to the reef, but also to humanity, for that matter? I mean, other than the fact that if you go to the Gold Coast, you know, the photos you're going to make underwater are just not going to be very visually interesting. Why why should we be concerned about this?
2: Well, the question of why we should not destroy the world is a question I don't ever fully understand. There's nothing in any religious or wisdom tradition or philosophy that says that it's okay to destroy the world. There's a lot that says that we have to keep the world and be stewards for all the generations that will follow us. For one thing, coral reefs are the greatest living pageant on Earth, probably, in terms of color and diversity, number of species, mystery, and not to mention the fact that millions of people directly make a living from them and get their food from them. So those are all some pretty good reasons to not destroy coral reefs.
1: You know, you were born, Carl, in New York, I believe, and you grew up on Long Island, so you are well-equipped to describe the kind of diverse and thriving communities that are found around coral reefs and how it all kind of jockeys for resources and works off of each other i mean it it's kind of like being down in um greenwich village or something with a lot of different people or the lower east side a lot of people walking around
2: that's a very good analogy if you take the corals as the given because you can't have a coral reef if there are no corals it would be like somebody made all of manhattan they made all the office buildings all the theaters, all the music clubs, all the bars, all the restaurants, all the different kinds of museums. And that was all there and there was not one single person. But that's what the chorals do. They build that empty city. And then the rest of life figures out, oh, here we could put on plays here. We could play music here. We could serve food. All these things are all set up and look perfect for doing that here. Millions of species have found that in a coral reef.
1: I'd like to ask you about the Endangered Species Act, which has recently been weakened. But before we talk about what's changed, you write that no more important or effective mechanism exists to help vulnerable plants and animals than the Endangered Species Act. And I wonder if you could just give us an overview as to what the Endangered Species Act is designed to do and how it's helped pull animals back from the brink, and and then how this law has recently been weakened. So first, what its power is.
2: The basic idea of the Endangered Species Act is that the United States of America decided for moral and ethical and practical reasons that it is the policy of our nation to not let species go extinct. Before that, there was no such thing and many species went extinct from incredibly high population numbers to zero. One was the passenger pigeon that existed literally in the billions in the middle of the 1800s and the last one died in a zoo in 1914. If there was an Endangered Species Act, nothing remotely like that would have happened. We'd still have plenty of passenger pigeons. Since the Endangered Species Act, Animals that have been flagged as existing at perilously low levels have gotten a lot of intervention, and many of them, most of them that have been listed as endangered have not gone extinct, and quite a few of them have recovered, and some of them are really spectacular ones, like the bald eagle, the national symbol, is quite abundant now. They were endangered because there were very, very few of them left by the 1960s and 70s. The California condor was extinct in the wild, but they now live in three different free-living locations, and the 1,000th egg of that program hatched about a year ago. Uh, it's a great, a great mark. All of those things would have been gone without the Endangered Species Act.
0: All right, so you have uh, cited some successes of the Endangered Species Act. Sounds like a good thing and yet uh, there seems to be some indication that it's endangered itself. Can you tell us if that's true
2: and how it's true? Usually the way that you save a species from going extinct is to just give it the room that it needs to exist. And often that's a matter of figuring out a coexistence. But those things that pose threats to species are often things that, make money for people who um, seem to only care about their particular money-making activity. Uh, But that is why the Trump administration weakened the act this summer to not leave room for these creatures that have essentially always existed, certainly before human beings existed they were here. Uh, They simply have no use for them. And I, I don't particularly care whether they do or don't have any use for them, but they have no moral authority to say that a creature that's been on this planet for millions of years is something that because of them will cease to exist. I I find that to be deeply immoral.
1: What's interesting, Carl, is that it doesn't seem to be a partisan issue, at least it didn't used to be. The Endangered Species Act was created by President Nixon, and he said that there was nothing more worthy of protecting than our country's rich animal life. So, So how have we lost that understanding in the meantime?
2: Well, the, the Republican Party used to be a, a just a different political party. It was not a strange ideological thing. How did we lose it? it? It was correctly perceived in the 1970s that the quality of the environment, the health of Americans, and the diverse living beauty of our country, America the Beautiful, were all the most valuable things that we had and that perception has been lost, which I think is a catastrophe. Well, maybe you collaborate
0: uh, a bit on a point that you have made in print, which is this argument that we need nature uh, is really the wrong way to go, because in some sense we don't need nature, and we seem to be able to prove that by uh, extirpating uh, much of it, as you say, but that we should argue that they need us. Now, you know, from a moral perspective, that sounds pretty good, but is it, you know, efficacious? Is it going to make a difference?
2: Well, yeah, what I what I wrote and what I believe is that we don't need most endangered species for us to exist. I mean, think of the things that we need to barely exist. We need, we need food and shelter. That's pretty much what we need. And everything that makes life worthwhile are things that we we don't need. We we don't need sports. We don't need fashion. We don't need beauty magazines. We don't need natural beauty to exist. But it's the things that we don't need that make life worth living, worth existing for. Many of these endangered species are not things that we need to exist. These various small birds or snails in rivers and... uh, or the bald eagle, for that matter. All these other things now need us. We have a moral imperative to keep them in the world. Most of the most of the things that we do, arguably all of the things that we do, we do because of some values that we have. If we value ourselves above other species, that that's just a value. It's the same as valuing all other species and saying that they belong in the world as well there's it's there's not a higher value that says that only the short-term concern of humans who are here now is in some way more important than all the life that has been on the planet and all the life that will be on and whatever life will be left on the planet when we are gone and we will be gone very quickly because we don't live that long we We live usually less than 100 years. That's no time at all. So in a way, it's a very bizarre conversation to have to wonder about the importance of life on the only living planet and and whether there's a lot of it that, quote, we don't need.
0: Next, how life finds a way and other glimmers of hope.
1: We know we sound different during these days of social distancing, but we're still here, and we thank you for continuing to listen to us. This episode is The Other Living World on Big Picture Science.
0: We continue our conversation about the living world with ecologist Carl Safina. We've heard about the powerful learned relationships animals have with their group and how vulnerable some of those groups are. Being vulnerable is something humans can perhaps better relate to these days. So we asked Dr. Safina, given all that's happening now, where does he find hope?
2: When I was in high school, there were animals that I knew from books that seemed pretty fantastic to me like a a giant fish hawk with a six-foot wingspan called an osprey. It was gone entirely from my region because of DDT and other pesticides. Bald eagles were almost extinct throughout the lower 48 states for the same reason and also for the same reason Peregrine falcons, a bird that was considered to be the most exciting bird in falconry and just simply a fantastic wild animal because it is the fastest living thing, they were completely wiped out across the lower United States and Europe. In fact, in 1970, the New York Times magazine ran an article called Death Comes to the Peregrine Falcon. I was in high school and I thought, I cannot believe my bad luck. My timing is horrible. I'm I'm here. I can actually see the remnants of osprey nests, and there are no ospreys, and I will never see an eagle, and I will never see a peregrine falcon. Nobody I knew had ever seen a whale. And then because of the efforts of a few very dedicated people, uh, simply accommodation was made. Some of those pesticides were put out of use, and it allowed those birds to start recovering. A few people started to Breed at least the falcons in captivity and started to put them out to repopulate. And now, instead of those uh, birds being gone, New York City has the densest known population of peregrine falcons in the world. They nest on the bridges and on the tall buildings. The ospreys are nesting in multiple sites within about two miles of where I live. I think we have four or five active osprey nests. Bald eagles are coming back to Long Island where I live after not being here for 60 years. There are whales that we see off the beach when we take the dogs for a walk. If we go down to the ocean in the summer, we often see whales. There are fish that have recovered tremendously from being very, very depleted in the 1990s. All of that is because people did things a little differently and simply let these animals live.
1: On the subject of accommodation, because of this pandemic, we've created a bit more room for the natural world. And you yourself, you earlier said that you were surprised by the extent to which the natural world has been able to breathe kind of a, a sigh of relief um, without having the human machines buzzing around. And there was a great story that came out of Venice, Italy. You're probably aware of this, that now that the cruise ships and the motorboats are gone... Uh, The water, the canals have cleared up and nature has taken over. Um, Seabirds are now there and fish are in the water. And someone has even put up a sign that said, don't tread on the duck eggs and um, commented that he'd never seen a sign like that. And that was, Carl, that was just in a matter of a a few weeks. Should we be surprised by how quickly life rebounds um, when it's given the smallest opportunity to do so?
2: Well, you know, the, the great single line from Jurassic Park is, life finds a way, but it needs an opportunity, and then it does. There, there are a lot of articles recently about uh, deer and ibex and some of these large hoofed mammals coming into cities uh, so quickly after human activity has withdrawn so life is out there. It, it is all around us. You know, all all of life on Earth is under a lot of pressure and threat from humans. That is true. But it's also true that there's a tremendous amount left. And it's worth making room for it and, and saving it, if you will. I don't always like that word. But it's worth it because there is so much resilience and so much vitality. I mean, that's the definition of vitality, right, is life. There's... There's vitality in life, and there's life in vitality, and it's it's all just ready to live. And all we need to do is make a little accommodation for coexistence, and it knows what to do.
0: You know, Carl, it does seem a little bit pat to say this. Maybe it is pat, but it appears that the younger generation has a greater interest in such environmental matters, if you will. I mean, the BBC clearly felt that it did because it's, you know, put together a very expensive series on the fauna of seven continents— And it seems to have an audience. That sounds like there's a generational shift in attitude. Or am I uh, looking at the world through uh, glasses that are a little red-tinged?
2: Well, I would certainly hope that there is an audience for a planet that is full of life. Imagine the audience if we went to some nearby planet and found that it it only looked dead from the outside, but when you got there, it was full of things growing out of the ground and zipping through the thin atmosphere or the thick atmosphere, whatever it was, that there were waterfalls, that there were things moving and scurrying all over the place. Everyone would be completely riveted. But I kind of wonder,
0: how would our attitudes be affected should we find another world with life?
2: Well, first of all, this is the only planet we have, but... Secondly, we do know enough about the rest of the galaxy that we've looked very hard for signs of life elsewhere, and the very least we can say is that it's really rare.
0: I think few astrobiologists would dare to say that life is very rare. I mean, the opposite could be true, after all. It's quite hard to look for life, and we haven't even adequately searched for it within the bounds of our own uh, solar system.
2: Well, I think the evidence is that no evidence for the existence has been found, despite the fact that quite a few places have been checked out pretty well. There's there's nowhere else in this solar system that has anything remotely, even if there are microbes on Mars, there's anything remotely like life on Earth.
1: Carl, people are already thinking about what the world might be like when this pandemic is over. And it, it's also comforting to know that it will end. I think we all need to know that it will end. And I wonder if it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the world that you imagine or work towards the world that you and other environmentalists and ecologists and scientists and and humans imagine and stop what you have called our material expansion. Is there a possibility here for us to arrive um, at a new relationship with the living world?
2: This is a fraught question because making predictions like this is... um It's not a science by by any means. I I will say that, yes, it's, it's certain that this will end because other pandemics have ended. So that's pretty certain that it will go the way of other pandemics. It's as certain that there will be more pandemics. And we are doing what has created recent pandemics. And we need to stop doing those things. That often has exactly to do with a brutal relationship with other living things, and these cruel and crowded conditions that we jumble them in, in this this viral test tube that keeps sparking these deadly pandemic or these deadly epidemics, this one being a pandemic. I, I don't want to speak too broadly about what we're learning about how to live during this, because I want to be sensitive to many people who have suddenly lost their entire income and are feeling tremendous dread and anxiety. Um, To those of us who are carrying on differently, but not badly, I think we're learning that throttling down a little and being home more is okay. We don't have to be running all over the place. We don't have to get in a plane to meet people face to face for every meeting or every conference or every class even that we want to do. It's nice to grow a garden. It's nice to throttle back. Uh, It would be good for, for those of us who are doing okay in this situation. It would be good to take some of that with us and to come back to something like life as we knew it. Maybe it would, maybe we could make it a bit gentler and a bit more, um, more flexible and a little less, um, overly intensive than the way that we have experienced life recently.
1: Finally, Carl, if, if we can think of the rest of the natural world as sort of like the part of our family that we've grown distant from, and we are trying to make our way back to that family, are there things that we're unaware that we've lost that will come back to us if we restore that relationship?
2: I, I think that because the sort of the tidal withdrawal from nature that we have made for ourselves has been relatively slow, certainly not as sudden as the COVID epidemic, for instance, but something that we've just grown accustomed to and grown up with. I think we don't realize how much we have lost what I think are the two most important things in in the experience of being alive, which is a sense of wonder and a life that is beautiful. I think that we've lost so much of that and when many people attempt to you know let's say reconnect with nature to say it in a very cliche way they don't have an experience to reconnect with it seems like something that's out there you you go to a place that's designated for nature you go to yellowstone national park for instance because that's where nature is like you go to the supermarket because that's where food is But the the living world is alive all around us, and the more we can simply take the time to see it or to find it very locally or to begin observing it better, literally the more beautiful our lives become.
1: So maybe, maybe we're like the macaws that are in kind of a captive breeding program and we're observing, and we're seeing everything around us, and we have an urge to become wild again. So the becoming wild doesn't apply just to these non-human animals. Maybe humans could learn to become wild again.
2: I I think that's such a beautiful way of putting it that uh, I I hesitate to even answer because I think you should have the last word with that question. But, um, yeah, we could learn, and we would need to learn, what the wonder and beauty is in this world that's all around us in a way that is analogous to how people who grew up in natural beauty simply learn from their elders the answer to that cultural question, this is how we live here, where we live. Just as these cultural species that we started talking about learn, this is how we live and, and this is who we are, here in this beautiful living world. People could do that too.
1: Carl Safina, thank you so much for talking to us. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you, thank you.
2: Thank you again so much. It's been a great honor and a lot of fun to speak with you and I'm glad we took the time and didn't rush it. Carl,
0: it's uh, been a great pleasure and uh, I hope to see you in the wild sometime. (laughs) Likewise. Carl Safina is an ecologist, he's a MacArthur Fellow, and he writes extensively about the human relationship with the natural world. He's the founding president of the Safina Center, he's also a professor at Stony Brook University, and the author of many books, most recently, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. As a listener to this program, you're surely aware that there's a lot of misinformation out there about this outbreak, including pseudoscience remedies, false statements about how the virus operates, and so forth. But you can remind others that if what they're hearing about this virus sounds incredible, or they're unsure what they should be doing, they should just check the facts with the local Public Health Service or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. They have questions. Science has answers.
1: We couldn't do this show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you to them for their help and for their willingness and ability to work on the show from their homes. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the possible adaptations of life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners.
1: This episode of Big Picture Science is the other living world. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You'll also find links to the guests you heard today. Stay safe, everyone.